Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic. You can call me whatever you want to call me. I've been called a lot worse than Mike. I can promise you that. <laughs> well, um, yeah, my name's Matt. I'm an alcoholic. It's, hey, Matt. Being here is, um, I was telling someone out in the hallway, I'd rather talk anywhere on the face of the earth than here because there's no lying here. There's, too, <laughs> there's not even any insinuation of a lie here. Um, so... I'll, and I'll tell you this, and I, I promise you this is the truth, I may be the most ignorant SOB in this room. I, I promise you that. And this is a place where that has served me well. <laughs> it's like the, this is one of the places, there's not too many places where you go where the less you know, the better off you are. I have to write down, my name's Matt, I'm an alcoholic, and put it in my book every time I talk because I forget to say it. Um... But I want to thank Robert for including me in his birthday celebration. Uh, I was trying to, I was trying to think about some things that, that I could say about Robert. There's nothing that I could really say that, uh, the folks here don't already know, but I will tell you that Robert has been with me in the toughest of times, and I think I've been there for him in the toughest of times. And we've enjoyed each other's company in the good times also. And, if there's anybody new, Alcoholics Anonymous, or is there anybody who's been around for a while and you found you haven't quite fit in, there's a lot of stuff that we do. And when I say we, it's, it's anybody who shows up and does the deal. The meetings are a very small part of it. And my sponsor used to tell me that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a place you go. It's a thing you do. It's the way you live. And um, a lot of us have been in each other's homes, and a lot of us have have been uh, been in, in churches together, and, and and been in funeral homes together. And um, I have this thing that I like to read when I talk about the uh, about my bottom, and when I went to the hospital. And this may be a shock to you, but I only wear this suit at funerals and AA talks. <laughs> I should say this suit. Suit period, and I and I felt something crumple, and um, I said, "Well, this is it." You know, I didn't lose it after all. And when I pulled it out, it wasn't what I was looking for. But the last time I wore this was to a funeral for a kid that I spent time with in this room, and you guys spent time in this room. And Logan already hit on this, but I have no idea why. I have no idea, and I'm not going to ever pretend to know. Hopefully, of why he had the fate he had, and I get the fate I have, but I can sum it up to you like this. If there's one thing that I'm grateful for today, it's that life's not fair. Because if life were fair and justice was served, I would be in big trouble right now. And it just didn't work out that way for me. Um, Best case scenario, in a fair life, I would be in prison. In a worst case scenario, I would be dead. And I have no idea why, why I get to live. So, thank you, Logan. Um... I wasn't thinking of myself or anything while Logan was talking. I was really in a spiritual spot. But when he did his closing, I said, hey, wait a minute. That's the way I close. (laughs) But I was thinking of Logan when I was doing that. 
<laughs> so I'll give you guys some examples. I'm a, I'm, I'm a nutcase. I mean, like, I, I would love to come up here and be one of those speakers that, that Alcoholics Anonymous has completely revolutionized my life, and I've been on a spiritual plane progressing upward since the day I got here, but it's not that way. So today my, my dad and, uh, and my stepmother in town from Tennessee, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on today. We're trying to get a lot of things done. And Holly, my wife, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, she didn't want to come tonight. You know, and if you were her, would you really want to come listen to me talk? <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, I mean, really? So she didn't want to come tonight, but I asked her to come for two reasons. One, I like having her around, but the main reason I asked her to come tonight was this is a special place for me. I wanted her to be with me. And she said she would. And a couple hours beforehand, she said, you know, I think I'm going to stay home tonight because I'm just really tired. And I said, well, I want you to go. She said, okay. So that's not good enough for me. So I got in the shower, and I was taking a shower, and I said, you know what, we're running late, and she is, when I get out of the shower, I'm going to be drying off, she's going to have a really sad face, and she's going to say to me that because I took so long in the shower, she didn't have time to get ready, and she can't go. And here's going to be my reply to her. (laughs) Do you guys ever play that out? I had the look on her face down in my mind, and this was going to be my reply to her. I wasn't going to look at her. I was going to keep looking in the mirror, and I was going to say to her, if this was a concert you were going to, you wouldn't mind interrupting me, would you? I had it all figured out. So I got out of the shower, and I was waiting for her to say what she was supposed to say. And she said, you know what? I don't have time to really get ready, so I'm just going to get ready in your bathroom, and we'll be ready to go. It's like, ruined everything. (laughs) Ruined everything. So let's do this. The first thing is for friends and, and sponsees and people, I just would, I don't really know how to do this appropriately and I don't want to be disrespectful, but I would just like to recognize Bill R. and all that he did. And, you know, I don't, I'm in no place to say that, but I'm the one up here, so I'll say it. He's a great man. He did a lot for the, the fellowship and people outside the fellowship and he's going to be missed. So I, I think it would be inappropriate to speak tonight and not mention that. Um, so let's do it. Let's see. Uh, how many people in here have ever had a drink? This is good, this drink. How many people have ever drank enough to get drunk? How many people keep on drinking after you're drunk? Yeah. That makes us different than a lot of people. How many people in here have ever been arrested? How many people have ever been arrested in more than one state? <laughs> Three or more states. <laughs> How many people have ever been to some type of organization? Some people call them treatment centers, hospitals. How many people have been to more than three of those? How many people are in one of those right now? How many people have ever been to one of those places before you ever had a drink of alcohol or a drug in your body? <laughs> Me and my pandemic. Oh, you too. You're the new one. So alcoholism doesn't have a whole lot to do with drinking. For me, I went to a drug and alcohol treatment before I ever tasted alcohol or had a drug in my body because the way I acted, the way I thought, the way I behaved, there was nothing else that explained it other than he's using something. <laughs> so they sent me this place called the Parthenon Pavilion in Nashville. 
and uh, I checked into the parking lot, telling everybody I've never even, you know, I don't do anything. And uh, and there was this guy there, and his name was Gordon. And, you know, I won't, I won't talk about this a lot, but I remember Gordon looking at me. I was 16, I may have been 16 or 17 years old, and Gordon looked at me one morning, and uh, and I was helping him do something, and he said, what's wrong with you? And nobody had just ever just put it like that to me. And I didn't have an answer. You know, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. And uh, and things went along, and life was unbearable. And um, I, I I I had a girlfriend. I had a hostage for a little while. And that made when I got out of when I got out of the Parthenon, I got this girlfriend. And actually, that girlfriend is how I found out about Alcoholics Anonymous. Her dad had been sober for over 20 years, and her granddad had been sober. And she had a brother who was my age. She was a year younger than us, and and I used to go over to her house, and I would be there with her mom and her dad, and her brother would come home, and he would be drunk and, and talking loud and yelling and everything, and, and, and her dad was so patient with him and so loving and, and caring. You know, he, he, he didn't have poor boundaries. He just tried to love them. And I would tell this man, I want to talk about a lack of humility. I want you to think about this for a second. I'm an 18, 19-year-old kid. This man's been sober for however long he's been sober. I tell this man how he needed to treat his son to get him to act right. It's amazing. The complete lack of proportion. Lack of an ability to think right. And he had enough humility to listen to me and just say thank you. So time goes on, and right around the time I'm 20 years old, I... And I don't know how this happened. I think I just decided to take a drink. I think someone said, hey, man, this will help. I think that's what it boils down to. I've told it different ways, but I think that's basically it. And man did it. And I took this drink, and everything slowed down. Everything was acceptable. I was acceptable. I think the biggest thing was I felt like other people liked me more that night I drank. I don't know if they did or not. They probably really did because it probably chilled me out a little bit, you know. And I thought it was a good idea since that felt so good that I should do it pretty often because I had always been miserable my whole life. And this was the first time I really wasn't miserable. And I also resented my dad. I resented my uncles. I resented a lot of people in my family because of the way they drank. And when I got that feeling that night, I very quickly connected. I was inappropriate to judge them the way I did. <laughs> because if I had known then what I just found out tonight, I would be drinking too. And I did. And pretty shortly thereafter, I called that, that girl that I was dating and that, that, that her dad had tolerated my ignorance. And I told her that she would probably be better off moving along and finding someone else. And immediately what the alcohol did for me took the place of what she did for me, which would make me feel okay about myself. And I just basically told her to hit the road. Um, we'd been dating for almost three years. It was, so, it was so ridiculous that she thought I was kidding. It was so absolutely ridiculous she thought I was kidding. But she did what I asked, and I went on my rampage, and I could talk to you about it. I could tell you stories. I've, I know I've been arrested. I'm DUIs, possession charges. I got arrested two times where the police were begging me to leave. <laughs> Y'all ever been in those situations where they arrest the wrong guy and the police just, they're uninformed. They didn't mean to get the wrong guy, but they got him in handcuffs and you're trying to explain to them that it's really the guy in the red shirt. They got the wrong guy. Any, no one else ever been in that situation? 
and the police are like, thank you, he'll be out in four hours, all you got to do is come get him. And it's like, I, I understand, but this is not the guy, it was the guy over here. Sir, we hear you, please walk back, you can get him out in four hours. But you're arresting the wrong guy, sir, if you don't turn around, we're going to put you under arrest. But, but two times not one two times I've sat in jail where police begged me to just walk away I don't have the ability to do that so those are two and I got a DUI in Georgia and it was a first offense and I went to court and I listened and I just said I'm not doing all that you know I mean that's a lot I went to Tennessee and I got a DUI and I went to court, and they charged me with a first offense DUI, which means, okay, you know, i got to take this one seriously because I kind of, you know, i got a break. And I did everything that they asked, and I went to get my driver's license back, and they said, you've got this problem in Georgia you have to take care of. And that was right when, uh, that was right when um, I guess, computers started talking to each other about it or whatever. And that was one of my bottoms. That was one of my bottoms. It was a situation that I thought I had it. I thought I had it figured out. And I went through, and I had everything going the way it was supposed to do. And then, like, the right thing happened, but it just didn't seem right to me. I actually thought about committing suicide because I couldn't get my driver's license. <laughs> pathetic and small as that. I mean, a, a serious thought. If I can't get my driver's license, what, what's life worth living? <laughs> all they were asking me to do is what they all they were asking me to do is the stuff, but I, I couldn't hear it that way. So this is kind of how things happened for me. I roamed around. I got a job. My family's in the cable business. I got this job where these CNN monitors you see in um, in airport gates, like the things my family put those up, and I got this job. And I worked for my family, and they paid me in cash. I didn't have a checking account. I never had a credit card. There was no residence. There was no record that I existed. There was no taxes, no pay stubs, no telephone number, nothing. <laughs> nothing had my name on it anywhere. And they paid me in cash. So I would get paid and have five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000 and go sleep on somebody's couch until I ran out of money and have to keep the money with me because I didn't have no place to put it. Now, that's okay. The sad thing is when I lay on the couch at somebody's house and go to sleep, I would think, I got it made. <laughs> so John, John had to steal stealing water from the, the guy's living. I beat the system. I'm not paying taxes. Nobody can contact me. This is the life. If I could just get them to wash this blanket, everything would be good. <laughs> So I started feeling lonely, and um, I went to a treatment center to kind of get my dad off my back. And, and you know, and, I, and it didn't really do anything. And then I went to another treatment center in 1997. And, and for you guys who know Daryl, I don't know who went first, but Daryl and I have been in a lot of the same institutions. <laughs> like, I think we've been, everyone I've been in, He's been in, but I don't think I've been in every one he's been in. <laughs> so we went to this place called Buffalo Valley. And I had tried to cut back on my drink and taper off. And I tried to quit, and I couldn't. I went to this place called Buffalo Valley, and I really got it. Guys from AA came in, and I really I wanted to stay sober. And my dad came to pick me up there. It was a 30-day treatment. And I remember telling my dad in the... 
in the parking lot of this place. I said, Dad, if I do what they said, I don't ever have to drink again. And why that's important to me is I didn't know it, but on some level I'd already accepted that I had to drink, which is a big deal for an alcoholic. You know, I'd gotten over the hurdle that I'm just doing this. There's a problem. You know, I knew that it was me, you know. And I went, um, we lived, or, and my uncle gave me another job, so I moved to Huntsville, and he gave me an apartment and a truck, and so everything was all set up for me, and I did really good. You know, I started exercising, I got in good shape, I started eating right, I started treating people better, I started treating my family better. Um, I went to AA in Huntsville. Well, I went to a, this treatment place in Huntsville, and I went in there, and I said, hey, where's the, where's the local AA meetings? And they told me, but my thing with AA is, um, I think it's a good thing. You know, I've been going to AA meetings for a lot longer than I've been sober, by the way, which I'm guessing a few of you can relate to. <coughs> um, I thought it was a good thing, and, and I understood the sponsorship thing. But I thought that the sponsor, sponsor was for people that just didn't really know about AA. You know, they didn't understand the steps, and they didn't, they hadn't been around as long as I have. <laughs> this is not a joke. This is, this is a conscious thought I had. I sat in that meeting and I said, for me to ask one of these men to be my sponsor is self-centered. And here's why. <laughs> if I know what's going on and act like I need help, that guy's time's going to be taken from somebody who really needs him. <laughs> so I just need to just do what I'm supposed to do and just move on along. And that worked fine. And I went by the swimming pool one day and there was a lot of good looking women down in the swimming pool. And they were probably around my age group, and I got confused on exactly how it was that they could drink at the swimming pool, but I couldn't, because I was only 27. Now, if I was 50, I get it, even if I was 40. <laughs> but 27 is a little bit more irresponsible than it is alcoholism. <laughs> and now that I go to work, pay my bills, I do what I'm supposed to do, I'm responsible. So... There was a problem. My uncle said, you can't, you know, the only condition he's working here is you can't drink. I was like, okay. So I lived in Huntsville, which is where we worked, but they all, they all lived somewhere else. So they would come in on Monday morning and then leave on Thursday afternoon and, you know, be there during the week. So one Friday I started drinking and, uh, and I drank down to the pool and it was great. You know, met some new people. And that Saturday I woke up and I drank. And that Sunday I woke up and I drank. And I went to um, work that Monday morning, and I was sure they were going to be able to see it on my face, you know, that, that something's going to happen. They're going to be like, he got drunk this weekend. Get your stuff and get the hell out of here. Because that's what people tell me sometimes. <laughs> um, and no one said anything. And then I said, well, you know what? They're just going to tell me at lunch. He didn't want to embarrass me. And lunchtime came. Nobody said anything. The end of the day came. And I said, on my way home, and you guys ever lived in Huntsville on Highway 72, I was driving home, and I said, this is the answer. I need to drink on the weekends, on Friday, Saturday, and some part of Sunday. And I did a good day's work today. It didn't affect my work. Everything's fine. So the next Friday comes around, drunk, Saturday, drunk, Sunday, drunk, go in Monday morning, and no one said anything. It was just like the Monday before. Lunchtime came and went, nobody said anything. And I was on my way home Monday, and the thought crossed my mind that if they can't tell on Monday morning you got drunk on Sunday, how could they tell on Tuesday morning that you got drunk on Monday? Absolutely no difference. 
So the best thing for me to do is to pull into this store, get some of that feel good, and let everything be the way it's supposed to be. And I never stopped. Never stopped. Somewhere in that just, somewhere in just that 48 or 72 hours, a man who had gone to the end of the world to help me and assist me and love me, my uncle, I didn't even care if he knew I'd been drinking. I was so, I, I didn't even have enough respect for him or myself to try to hide it. And he manipulated me into going to see the doctor. And he told me that we were changing our health insurance at work and I needed to have a physical. <laughs> Which doesn't sound that big a deal, except we didn't have health insurance. <laughs> it didn't even exist. But I said, okay. You know. <laughs> so I went to the doctor and he sent somebody with me that I thought that, I don't know exactly what I thought, but I thought that it was like a positive thing. But I didn't realize he was making sure that I actually went to the doctor. So he sent somebody with me, and I couldn't fill out the forms, the questions, because the, the bubbles were so small, I couldn't keep, the, couldn't keep the pencil in there, so the guy filled it out for me. And there was an Indian lady, and she sat down with me, and um, she started asking me some questions, and she said, um, how often do you drink? And I said, I drink, a little, I drink at least a little bit every day. She said, okay. And she said, how much do you drink? And I said, okay. Twelve pack. And she goes, a 12-pack every day? And I had halved it. <laughs> I didn't drink 24 beers every day, but that was kind of my, my standard was drink 24 Bud Lights. And I immediately said, I've halved what I do, and they're shocked. This is not, this is not positive. <laughs> and they did my blood work, and my liver enzyme counts were elevated. And she said, this is what we're concerned about. And she was showing me. And I said, you know what? I'm, I've been meaning to stop, and I'm going to stop. And she said, can you tell me how you're going to stop? I said, I'm going to drink 12 tonight, 10 tomorrow. And <laughs> at the end of the time, it'll be down. And when I said that, I wasn't saying it, trying to get her to buy it and then go do what I wanted. I really believe that's what I, that's what I was going to do because I knew she meant business. I knew that the medical stuff was correct. I wasn't trying to be dishonest with her. I was just totally disconnected from reality. Cause I tried to do that hundreds of times. And she looked at me kind of funny and I, you know, I don't think this lady knew a lot about alcoholism, but she probably learned after having an appointment with me because <laughs> right before her was someone who seemed to be thinking appropriately, but every time they talked, it was proof they weren't. You know, and she said, "This is what we're going to do. We're going to uh, we're going to set you up an appointment." And I said, "I'm not doing that. I appreciate your time, and I'm going to leave." And I made my friend leave with me, and I stopped and got beer on the way home. And the next day, I had a knock on my door in Huntsville, and my family lives in Atlanta, and my mom and my stepdad were there. And she said, "We're going to help you um, go to treatment." The doctor called us because I put her down for emergency contact. And I looked my mom in the eye, and I'm an only child, and I told her that I'd rather die than quit drinking. She got back in her car and she came back to Atlanta. Um, it's just where it goes. You know, that's what it does. Um, I had a dream that I couldn't kill myself. You know, I didn't, didn't, I didn't, I wanted to die, but I didn't want to, to, to kill myself. So my idea was I can get what I want if I can just find a way to get killed, basically. So my dream was this is an alcoholic anthem. I wanted to be driving down the road and there's a car fire. 
and there's somebody trapped in the car. <laughs> Maybe even a kid. And I get to go in and some, some passerby pull up for witnesses and I get to I pull the person out, throw them to the grass, the safety, and I die in the explosion. <laughs> like, that's the, if it's the gist, what can I do to make that happen? And and it, it, it is, it, it's just so funny, but it's so sad. It's so sad that I was at a spot in my life with all the resources I had, and all the people that cared about me, and all the love in my life. And alcoholism and my thinking took me to a spot where that was my dream. Um, it's just, you know, it is what it is. So that's what it, that's, that's what it does. On the night before Father's Day in 1998, I went to my grandparents, my two grandmothers' house. Went to my grandparents' house, talked to my two grandmothers, and told them goodbye. I had I had gotten okay with dying. It's just you know, 28, I want to die. And I told my grandparent grandmothers goodbye. I went to my dad's house and um, passed out on my bed. And um, and my mom called to to talk to me. My mom and dad don't talk. They've been divorced for 25 years and. My dad said he's asleep. She said, wake him up. He couldn't get me up. And she said, I feel, I feel like something's wrong. Wake him up. And he said, you're crazy. Call back tomorrow. She said, you can either wake him up or I'm going to call the police. So, and he thinks like me. So, woke me up. Um, and, 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 and she said, take him to the hospital. And he didn't know why he was taking me to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and I got there and, um, and they kind of had me do this field sobriety test. And I walked and counted to 10 and, you know, did the ABCs and all that stuff. And the guy, the doctor was looking at me, you know, it's kind of like he's writing stuff. And I like, what's wrong? And he said, your blood alcohol level is 0.42. It's like, that's crazy. 0.3 people are dead. And I'm having a conversation with you and it's 0.42. And he said, that's why we're worried. <laughs> so they, they invited me to spend the night. And uh, they gave me Librium, and they decreased it too fast, and I went into these hallucinogens. And you guys know those things on the barbershop, whatever that thing is? I had two of those in my room from the floor all the way up to the ceiling, and they were going constantly. And if any of you guys have ever had hallucinations, the, the worst part about hallucinations, if you think the hallucinations are real, you can kind of work with that, you know? <laughs> but if you're hallucinating and you know it's not real, for some reason that's more painful. So you have to say things like, nurse. I know there's not spiders on the wall. <laughs> you know there's not spiders on the wall. But could you please take this newspaper and wipe about two feet above the ceiling? And they say, yeah, we can do that. Thank you. Appreciate you not humiliating me in front of everybody. Thanks for understanding. So, um, so I'm at the hospital, and, you know, I, I, I don't... I know I told them that I didn't want to go to treatment. My dad's understanding of the disease is when they're rolling me to coronary care, which is where you go when, when, uh, when the Librium gets taken down too fast, he said, if you make it through this, I'll buy you a new car. And his idea was, I mean, you know, I guess his idea was that was the whole problem. I didn't have the right car. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and I came out, and I, I went to a treatment center here in Atlanta, and so I was living in Huntsville, and I went to Tennessee, and I was in the hospital, and I had Central Treatment Center in Atlanta, and I went to AA, and I had been to AA, and everything changed for me when I came to AA here. And I don't think it's because AA is better here. I think it's because of those things that we hear when we're in the rooms. The circumstances make you willing. 
And you hear what you're supposed to hear. And when you're ready, you'll be ready. And all that stuff happened. And this man was at this AA meeting. And for whatever reason, in that moment, that seconds and inches that people talk about, and there's no explanation for it, I got hope. I got hope. I didn't have a dream that everything's going to be fantastic. And I didn't have a dream that this problem is solved. But I had been in tons of AA meetings before. And I remember wishing I could be hopeful. Sometimes wishing I could be an alcoholic, actually. I couldn't admit. I was like, I wish I was, I wish I was as weak as these people. <laughs> Damn idiots seem to be reasonably happy. I got important stuff. But there was a moment of hope, and I asked him for help. And the reason I asked him for help is I had to ask somebody for help to satisfy the treatment center. But this man and I ended up building a relationship. And that was in July, maybe, July of 1998. And he ended up building a relationship, and it revolutionized my life. Because he was the channel of Alcoholics Anonymous for me. And he was my God. And your sponsor is not supposed to be your God. Nobody's supposed to be your God, I guess. But I had to have it that way to get to God. And he was very clear with me that he wasn't. But he allowed me to believe that so I could get my own definition of a higher power. And how he thought I'd best go on this path was the same way that he did. And we spent a lot of time in the doctor's opinion in the big book. And I was able, for the first time in my life, after having everyone I'd ever been around for the last five or six years call me an alcoholic, I was able to say I'm an alcoholic. I had said it in AA meetings. I'd said it in treatment. I'd said it as I cried on my mom and dad's couch asking for more money and a bailout. But I had never believed it. And I was able to say I'm an alcoholic because I know what an alcoholic is. And he told me four words, mental obsession, physical allergy. And I don't want to do an AA class and nobody in here wants to hear one. But those four words completely changed my view of what I suffered from. It gave me a direct definition for why I behaved the way I behaved and why I thought the way I thought. And that's really all I needed to springboard and kind of do some things. You know, I'm a why guy. So the stuff was available to me at AA before, but I didn't know what I was suffering from. I didn't know what my problem was. I didn't know about a mental obsession, physical allergy. And he never told me anything. And to this day, he's never told me anything. He asked a lot of questions. He said, have you ever had a job where they were concerned about your drinking and said, if you keep drinking the way you're drinking, you're going to lose your job? Yes. Did you want to lose that job? No. I had a great job at CNN. I had a great job at CNN. And they begged me, they begged me to get help. And I wanted to keep the job, and I knew they were going to fire me. And I knew the only thing I could do to get fired was to drink, and I got drunk. And he said, why did you drink? And I don't have an answer for that. The job I want, and the only thing I can do to lose it is to drink, so what do you do? You go drink. He said, have you ever been in a relationship? And the woman said, if you keep drinking the way you're drinking, I can't do this. Yes. Did you want her to go? No, I did not. Did you know she meant it when she said it? I absolutely knew she was going to leave if I kept drinking. What did you do? I uh, got drunk. <laughs> Okay, why did you do that? I have no explanation for that. Well, that's an obsession. Okay, that's an idea that outweighs all others. The idea for me to drink outweighs the idea of having a job, being well thought of, having a relationship, living at the end. Okay, I got that one. And the allergy part was easy because, um, and, and I, I, I hate saying this in AA meetings because I know when I sit, when I would sit in meetings, I would always look for a way I'm not an alcoholic. And, and so I got a friend who drank a half a Heineken one time, and that kept him drunk for 10 years because he said, I can't have the allergy if I drink a half a Heineken. But I never had a social drink. 
Not even once. I just never, ever, ever did anything other than get drunk. Not one single time. So the allergy part was pretty much cut and dry. Okay? Um, so what do you do now? Well, you've got to have some type of solution to this, and I can't help you with that. You're going to have to have some relationship with a higher power. And I asked him what he did, and he said, I get on my knees every morning and pray for the obsession to drink to be taken away. Because if you don't take a drink, the allergy takes care of itself. And I said, all right. Well, I don't believe in God. So what do I do? What about the non, non-God people? What do they do? Is there somebody at AA I can ask to take away their obsession? Will you take it away? And he said, you just have to pray. And I said, well, I don't believe in God. And he goes, okay. You know, you just have to pray. He said, you don't have to believe in God to pray. You just have to be willing. And that makes sense to me. I don't know why. I don't know why he gave me permission to pray. So I got down on my knees and asked God to take away the obsession. And at night I said, thank you. And we just started doing things. And we did a third step prayer together. And I had been praying on my knees for morning and night. But I always did it when my roommate was in the shower or not at home. And I didn't want anybody to see me on my knees. Didn't mind anybody seeing me yellow or 50 pounds underweight or handcuffed. <laughs> but you're not going to see me down on my knees praying to anything. That's just not the way I roll. I'm a whole different situation. So no one had ever seen me pray on my knees before until we got. You know, another funny thing about that. My mom, this lady who's been praying for me her entire life. I'm her only child. Went to the hospital, sat with me when I'm in coronary care, pray, pray, pray. I've been sober for two or three months, and she came to pick me up because I don't have a car or driver's license. Yeah. And we're driving to eat lunch somewhere, and we're talking about things and talking about prayer. And she's like, ah, oh, this, this, this. And I said, Mom, you pray on your knees? And she said, no, I don't pray on my knees. And I said, well, then it doesn't even count if you don't pray on your knees. It's <laughs> like that guy, you know, that guy back there that... You know, had been sober for 22 or 23 years and didn't know how to treat his alcoholic son until I informed him how to do it. Um, so, you know, one other quick, I hate to bounce around, but one other quick thing about that. My, my, it was so desperate with my mom when I was at the hospital, she called that man. And that man has one daughter. One daughter. who got called by her boyfriend that she had been dating three years and told to hit the road because he didn't need her anymore. And he came and 12-stepped me in the hospital. Now, you want to talk about putting some things to the side. And I went back every single one of my anniversaries and thanked him for doing that. But that's Alcoholics Anonymous to me. This man probably mistreated my only daughter worse than anybody ever has. But he needs a 12-step call, and I'm going to go do it. And he did. So I did the third step, and I did the fourth step, and, you know, get the fourth step down and he said you know this is what you got to do and you know what's really nice is if you don't have a driver's license or if you don't have a car or whatever the car time with my sponsor was way more important than anything that happened in the meetings i still don't know what the hell goes on in meetings i know i know we talk about a lot of people doing it wrong like this meeting those people don't do it right what happened to aa and back in the 40s we did this and you know in the car it's just the car you know it's, it's he and i so we're talking and he tells me to start on my fourth step, and I start on it, and he says, this is what you do, call me when you get done, and then you do this next, and you do this next. And my roommate had the same sponsor, and we used to try to do, like, get two calls for one. Like, Travis says he's checking in two, and he goes, hang up the phone, tell Travis to call me. <laughs> so, um, so, so he would pick us up, and we'd do this stuff, and I'd get my fourth step down, and 
and I've got it. And in November of 1998, we met at this church, and we go down to the basement. The meetings were on Monday and Friday, and we were there by ourselves on Tuesday, and we got into into action, and I knew it was the fifth step, and we opened it up, and I said, listen, Pat, I was thinking about something. And he said, hold on just a second. I said, okay. And he said, write that down on your on your book. And I wrote it down, and he said, what's the name of this chapter? And I said, into action. He said, put an X on what you just wrote down, and let's start reading. That doesn't play. <coughs> we started reading, and he closed his book and crossed his legs and goes, well, go right ahead. I was like, well, go right ahead with what? And he said, it says that you're supposed to tell me all your life story. And I reached over to get my fourth step, and he goes, I don't really care about the fourth step right now. I want you to tell me your life story. And I said, well, where do I start? And he said, well, you can start with uh, sex with farm animals since you're from Tennessee. <laughs> I didn't, I mean, like for a minute, like, I don't recall anything. <laughs> oh, you know what? That's something else. You know, that's something else. It's, it's real quick. I'm a blackout drinker. And... And that's what I do. I black out when I drink a lot, at least half the time. And something happened with an AA guy that's not important. And I've been sober three or four months. But he did something that I deemed un, you know, unacceptable. He did something that left his kid at baseball practice or something. And I was talking to Pat about it in the car. I was like, you know, this guy did this, did this. I'm like, I did a bunch of bad stuff. And I'm no angel. But damn, you know, when it gets to kids, your kids. And Pat says, have you ever had sex with a 95-year-old woman with scabs all over her body before? Mm, I haven't, and I'm not sure how that connects with somebody getting left at baseball practice. And he asked me again, and I said, no, I haven't. And he said, I thought you told me you were a blackout drinker. I said, well, I am. And he said, then how do you know? I don't hear any laughter. And that was the night that I realized that I can't 100% for certain, say, I have or have not done anything because I have no recollection of huge segments of time in my life. So I, I cried because that was a, you know, that sort of snatched the blanket off there. And I said, what does this mean? And he said two things. Be grateful you're alive and you have no right to stand in any judgment of another human being for as long as you live. Now, I heard it that night. I have. But from time to time, that moment comes back when I'm looking over here and they're doing it wrong and I can't believe that. It's like, hell, I don't even know what I've done. So how can I, how am I doing this? So take that for what it's worth. So we did the fifth step, um, got through the fifth step. We went upstairs and uh, we talked for a little bit. We did the third step prayer again. Then we come downstairs and we talked about that third and fourth column. And I found, I would have liked to, I'd like to talk about just this for a long time, but we can't. And I found out that I wasn't really mad at the police or the IRS. And I wasn't really mad that they beat me down or they took my money. I was really mad that it affected my pride and my emotional security. And my feelings get hurt easy. I can take a damn beating, but please don't look at me wrong. (laughs) I'd rather be punched in the face than somebody roll their eyes at me. It just hurts because I'm sensitive. So you guys will please remember that. (laughs) So I found out all these people that I was so angry about, a lot of times it was because they had either done something or I thought they did something or I imagined they did something that hurt hurt me. And two things are at issue there. First of all, they didn't. 
which is the big one, but sometimes they do. And even when they do, there's nothing I can do about that. So I found out that my character defects in step six... Oh, that's another thing. What's the difference between a character defect and a shortcoming? That's a good AA conversation, Starbucks, 11 o'clock at night. Nothing. They didn't want to use the same word two times. So uh, it's self-willed ways to get God-given instincts met. So then when I get set up to go make my amends, I'm all set, and I don't have to say I'm sorry. I wanted to say I'm sorry my whole life, and I did a lot of times. So now I can go to my mom, and I can say, hey, listen... This is what I recall doing, and here's where I was living on self-will, and here's what I think I should have done, and I would like for you to tell me what I can do to make it up to you. I get to call the IRS. Guess what? I'm sober. (laughs) I cheated you guys. I thought the harder you work, the more money you take, and that's not fair, so I just said I didn't make as much as I really did, and, you know, what do I need to do? They put you on hold. (laughs) <laughs> social security number address and you can pay them back and that was my very first amend where the person didn't say we're just glad you're doing good now because, <laughs> because all my other ones were my family you know what I mean it was all people that was like encouraging like we're proud of you you know keep doing what you're doing the IRS don't give a damn <laughs> but but you know what else that guy told me that people from AA call them every day he really said that. He said people call them every day. And if you don't pay your taxes, you don't have to, you don't have to call, the, you don't have to pay your taxes to stay sober. That's not what the point of this is. The point of it is if there's something that's on your conscience and you have to clear it up, it may affect your sobriety. It may affect my sobriety if I have something on my conscience. Different people can tolerate different things. So I can't be judging what other people do. Hell, I don't even know what I'm doing. How am I going to tell what you're doing? And that's a great lesson for me. Because I'm always out here and never in here. Step 10, my favorite paragraph in the big books on page 84, and it's got the int- If I know I'm powerless over alcohol, everything else is in that paragraph. And I get to live like that. I don't. You know, I don't. I sit down every night, have a candlelight, and a dog at my feet, and do a 30 minute step 10. I would like to do that. <laughs> but I don't, because sometimes I want to watch the Braves game. <laughs> but I know because of what my sponsor told me is the steps. And the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and a fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous enable me to be as happy and serene as I choose to be. And sometimes I choose to get everything AA has to offer, and sometimes I take just enough to not drink that day. And that's the insanity of it. So that's what it is. Step 11, I started out on page 99 in the, in the 12 and 12, and he said, you know, this is just a good thing I did, and you got to figure your own way. And everybody kind of does their own thing here. And I did the St. Francis prayer. Um, I went to Italy when I had been sober for five years, and I went to uh, the basilica where St. Francis wrote that prayer. And instead of trying to appreciate how that connected with my step 11 and I was actually in it, I said, I'm going to do a prayer on my knees in the basilica, and when I get back, I'm going to tell everybody in AA. And I I did. Well, I see you're reading page 99 there. (laughs) About a month ago, I just so happened. I'm doing the best I can do. I'm all right with that. I am all right with that. So, on step 12, and he told me when we got through there, and my sponsor. My sponsor really dedicated so much time and so much love to me. And, and of course, by this time, I had him down off the pedestal and we're together. And he says, Matthew, if you 
really, he goes, you're happy with the way things are, and I know you're grateful, and you could go on the rest of your life and be okay, gratitude. But if you really, really want what AA has to offer, you'll sit down with other men and take them through this book like I did with you. And I said, but I can't do that. And he goes, you're right, you can't. But you just have to be willing to sit with them and just go through. He goes, you wrote down, just read this book. So we sponsored this guy named Reed, and he told me to come with him and just, like, to witness him doing with Reed what he did with me and kind of get used to it. So I went with him, and we're in that same church where I did my fifth step. And um, this guy, Reed, is yellow. He's more yellow than I was. You know you're an alcoholic when you go, that guy's more yellow than I was. <laughs> he did more damage to his liver than I did. So he's yellow, and he has a pager around his neck. So when they get the liver, then he's going to get called. And we get to this part in the book where it's basically saying you're either an alcoholic or you're not an alcoholic. You do this or you don't. And Reed says, you know, I'm still struggling with this. And I was kind of like, oh, man, it's on now. You know, I'm like, I don't want to get in the crossfire here. And Pat shuts his book and leans back, crosses his legs, and he goes, well, tell me about that. And he just gives that guy just talk. God just talking it out. Here's why I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. And here's this. He's listening to me patiently. I'm going, oh my God. No, no identification with me. I'm thinking this guy's an idiot. And he gets through and Pat said, anything else? And I was done. And he said, do you mind if I, if I kind of tell you what it looks like from my angle? And the guy goes, no, not at all. He goes, okay. He said, you're in the basement of a church you're not a member of with two people you've known for about a month on a Tuesday night. You have a pager around your neck waiting for your liver to come in, and your skin is yellow, and your wife is going to come outside and ask me if you did what you're supposed to do before I drop you back off, even though you own the home and you're retired. I can see what you're saying. Let's go ahead and go back to the book. <laughs> I like that. Just very nicely and kindly said, you're nuts. So, um, so I was willing to sponsor some people, and I've gotten to sponsor people, and some of the things I'm most ashamed of and have the most pain about is the things I get to sit with other guys and listen to, and won't go into that a lot, but the fifth step, taking people through the steps, changed my life again, and I got to see what they meant by that, because there was two or three things that happened in my life, and they're saying, not regret this, not want to shut the door on it, exactly how would I ever be to a point where I'm not going to regret that? And how could I not want to forget that? And then you sit down with a man in tears and he can't look at you in the eye because he's so ashamed and he says the exact same thing and you get to say, me too. I don't know where you get that except for here. I don't know where you get that for here. So I'm going to close out with this. So that, that that's just kind of what it is, you know. Um, we'll close out. I'm going to say some things very quickly. I got the opportunity to uh, to work at the place where I lived while I was getting sober. They didn't save my life, but they gave me a place to live, and they supported me while you guys saved my life. So without them, I don't think I would have been able to stay here. So y'all get the credit, but they get an assist. <laughs> so I got to live there. And one of those things that, that, that I was telling you about, being a blackout drinker, is I lived alone most of the time while I was drinking, and there were many mornings where I had to walk down the steps of my apartment and walk around my car with that feeling of, oh, my God, I hope I didn't hit anyone. I hope I didn't hit anything. And walk around my truck. It gives me chills just saying it now. Walk around my truck and just say, did I or didn't I? Because I would have no way of knowing. And one of the ways that I, um, I guess, heal that 
is I'm a DUI school teacher. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> Some of you have been in my class. Um, but I think it makes a difference because I can talk to them a little bit about you guys without them knowing I'm talking about you guys. And I give them my telephone number and every now and then somebody gets curious and they come. And that's, that's my way of sort of reconciling that behavior because when I was telling you earlier about life being fair, if everything was fair, I'd be in prison. There's no, there's no logical explanation why I didn't hurt anyone. I have a lot of friends that have had to go to prison. I've had a lot of friends that have taken their life and they did far less than I did. So there's that. And one quick last thing. Um, last year, um, not last year, three years ago, March 2010, I had been sober for 12 years, almost 12 years. My entire life was pulled out from under me. Entire life. Now, I don't know what's reality and what's not reality, but my perception at that moment is the way it is. And everything I had ever dreamed of, everything that I'd ever wanted, I had. I had it. And it was taken away. It was all taken away abruptly. I called my sponsor. I went. Some of some of you have been. A lot of you have been involved in this. I called my sponsor and I went to his house and I let people love on me. And I didn't know this, but my pride had kept me from ever letting other people help me in Alcoholics Anonymous except for my sponsor. And I thought, I thought that was self. You know, I, mean, I was. I was selfish with being unselfish. You know, I was thinking, and it was pride. You know, I can help people, and I can do this, and I can do this. I'll help somebody move their furniture, but I'll move a couch by myself to keep from bothering somebody. Well, that's not what the AA teaches. But I didn't let anybody help me do anything, and I got brought to my knees in such a way there was nothing for me to do but to ask for help. And I went to his house, and there was a big group of guys there, and we spent some time together. It was on a Wednesday night. And I was coming home, and I was thinking, if there's just any way that I could go to sleep, if I could just get to sleep tonight, I'll be okay. And this guy called me that I had sponsored. I hadn't talked to him in two years. And he said, I'm in trouble, and I need you. I was able to accept help. And there's no doubt in my mind that God would give me a message when he had that man call me. I got to get in the middle of the bed again. And there's a lot of people in this room that sat with me during that time, went to eat with me, and cried with me. It was the first time that I allowed another man to hold me while I cried and let people see me at my weakest spot. When I got to that point and I started pushing my way back out and pushing my way back out, and I got out and then I got to see that I had come full circle and at that time, at least up until now, I had let myself have everything Alcoholics Anonymous had to offer. Sponsoring people and speaking and being willing to come 30 minutes early, that's very important things. But I had cheated myself out of letting someone else be there for me when I needed them, and I learned that lesson. Now, things change quick, alcoholic lives. If you're drinking or in recovery. So right about the time I realized this, and I'm starting to... My answer to it was I just start working 90 hours a week. But, you know, there's some benefits to that. You get a little more money. Um, Holly came into my life. And, um, man, I would like to tell you guys about this. So, um, 
how he came into my life. I, I did everything I could to say this is not right. So all those same people that I went back to them and was like, it can't be, aren't you supposed to like wait five years or something? Like it can't be this fast. Doesn't God have like a time limit? And it's like, no, just shut up and do it in front of you. <laughs> so, um, so I went down. Holly and I are dating. We've been dating for a few months, and and I talked to her about proposing to her, and we went and we got a ring, and I just never. I was just thinking, this is not the way things are supposed to be for me. So we go down. I meet her dad. And, in Florida and her dad's talking to me and everything and I tell him I want his permission to ask her and she's asleep and her mom in another room so it's just me and him and he he gets up and he hugs me and it's like okay this is good and then we separate and then I see his face drop kind of it's like oh shit what happened? Everything was going good and he says well Holly tells me that you got into your line of work because you've had your own problems oh and I said, I do. And he said, how do you know that being married and the pressure of being married is not going to cause you to drink again? And I said, I don't. Now, this wasn't me. I had practiced this with my sponsor for days beforehand. I was her dad. He was me. I, I drilled him. It's like, why, why is somebody 41 years old not married yet? And what do you got? What kind of house do you got? And, what are you, and he's just answering the question. So I'm prepared. And I said, I don't know. And he goes, how do you know that pressures of having a kid are not going to make you drink again? And I said, I don't know. And he's just looking at me like, you know, that's the best you can do. You're not comforting me here. And I said, this is what I do. And I went back to that very first thing Pat told me. I said, I get on my knees in the morning. I ask God to take away the obsession to drink. And at night I get on my knees and I say, thank you. And I don't think I'm going to stop doing that. And he said, that's good enough for me. Gave me a hug. Got married. Beautiful. Anybody who's friends with me on Facebook probably sick of seeing pictures and videos of my son, but you're going to have to defriend me or block me because they're coming. <laughs> and that's the way it is, you know. I I don't have an explanation of why I get to have that. If it's what you deserve, I'm screwed. Thank God life doesn't work that way. So what's the message? I don't know. I'm pathetic drunk. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a daily don't eat drunk. Um... I got hope here. Somebody was willing to spend time with me and be with me until I could develop some sort of spiritual relationship. And now I have 100% dependence on that relationship with God. And I pray on my knees every morning for God to take away the obsession. And then every night I say thank you. And I've screwed up everything you can possibly screw up between those two prayers. But I haven't taken a drink. And you guys haven't thrown me out yet. I'm closing out now. If Logan hadn't screwed everything up, I would, <laughs> I would read the, the bottom of the page, but I won't do that. I just want to thank you, and again, just mention to Robert, you know, that thing of the relationships. If you're here and you're lonely, I know I was, if you can just make yourself ask somebody a question, or just make yourself go out to pizza tonight, or make yourself use a telephone, don't miss. Don't miss. Somebody may come up to you, but they may not. Don't miss. Alcoholics Anonymous is not this meeting from 7 to 8.30. Alcoholics Anonymous is a way to live. We just happen to meet periodically at 7 to 8 o'clock in churches around town. This is not AA. This <laughs> is where we meet. Get to know some of us. Get a telephone number. Thank you, Robert. I love you. Without you, I'm nothing. Thank you, guys.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.